You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Just now realizing exactly how loud it is in here. This is going to be really funny because you guys know I like to yell a little bit anyhow. Uh, but yeah, we're getting back to our study of the Gospel of Mark. But before we go any further, uh, we want to give uh, big thanks to Grace Community Church or Grace Community at Bigelow Church uh, for letting us be here. Uh, we're super grateful. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny to think back how Rev started and the attitude that we had, which was a horrible attitude. <laughs> that our church had in its infancy and now to see that we're actually friends with other churches in the area and that we can help each other out is a great testimony to the grace of God. Uh, also, uh, big thanks to uh, Eric Holloway and Dave Allison for covering the pulpit for me so I could get a break. Um, but anyhow, uh, this week we're back in the Gospel of Mark. Again, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Use a Bible, get your phone out. We have no screens this evening. We didn't want to trouble Bigelow or... Uh, our brother Bob Borders up there in the top who's running sound for us. Uh, God bless you, brother. Uh, we didn't want to trouble him with anything else, so you're going to need a Bible. Uh, you're going to need that this evening. Um, but this week, we're going to be taking a look at how Jesus called and associated with the worst of sinners. Uh, I'll keep this introduction really short because there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to say this evening. And also, I believe this passage is pretty simple. Uh, in the last couple of passages we've looked at in the Gospel of Mark, um, We've got to see what kind of a savior that Jesus is. When we saw Jesus heal a leper, we saw that Jesus is a willing savior. Did we not? If you will, you can make me clean. I will be clean. Right? Jesus is willing to even make the most unclean people clean. And in our passage last time that I preached, we saw Jesus heal a paralyzed man. And in it, we learned that Jesus has, not only is he willing, but he has the authority to forgive sin. And he proved his authority by healing the paralytic. Uh, but now in our text this evening, we're going to see what kind of people Jesus forgives. So he's willing to save and forgive. He has the, the authority to save and forgive. But what kind of people does he save and forgive? What kind of people did Jesus come for? And I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. Spoiler alert. Jesus forgives sinners. <laughs> he came for sinners. And I know that's incredibly simple, but I also know that this is something that we can forget very quickly. Jesus came for sinners. He came for even the lowest of the low. He came for the social outcast, even the worst kinds of sinners. Jesus came to forgive and save literally anyone who knows that they are a sinner and will look to Him for the forgiveness of sins. Anyone. I'll say it again in case you couldn't hear me in this incredibly boomy, loud room. Anyone who will look to Him in faith, He will forgive. There is no sinner too far gone that our Lord Jesus cannot redeem. There is no sinner too low that our Lord Jesus Christ cannot reach. But we must first recognize that we are vile sinners in need of a Savior or Christ has nothing to offer us. Our Lord Jesus has nothing to offer a self-righteous person. So with that said, let's go ahead and read our text. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, 
And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before you this evening in humility and in worship. We ask that you would help us to worship you rightly. Please, open our hearts to your word and teach us the truth. Help us to see that all of us, every single one of us, is a sinner in need of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, God, grant us repentance if we've become self-righteous and teach us more of the grace of our Lord. Grant to us that we would be attentive to the word preached this evening and seal your word to our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit. We know you will because we ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so our text this evening starts off by telling us that Jesus is out beside the sea. He's out beside the Sea of Galilee. And verse 13 says he's teaching a large crowd. The original language here uh, indicates an ongoing action. He's always out preaching. He's always out teaching. People are always coming to him. Uh, But nevertheless, he's out there teaching, and no doubt he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, as we saw in Mark 1, 14 and 15, I believe. Uh, The the time is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, He's calling people to repent and believe that he's bringing in God's kingdom, that he is the Messiah, that he's the promised one, God is bringing his promises to pass. So he's out there preaching this to people, preaching this message of salvation through faith in him. But after Jesus is finishing preaching, after he's finished preaching and probably going back into town, we read this, verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I want to take a second to say you know this, in case you were curious. This man named Levi here in our text, he's also named as Levi in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, he's actually Matthew. He's the man who would later be called Matthew, the apostle and gospel writer. And we know this because the gospel of Matthew in chapter 9 has the exact same account that Mark has in chapter 2 and Luke has in chapter 5. But Matthew names him as Matthew, the tax collector, instead of Levi. So this Levi is Matthew. Why would he change his name? Probably everyone knew who Levi the tax collector was, and after he became a Christian, he didn't want to be associated with that anymore. Or a lot of times have people went by more than one name. Peter was Peter, Cephas, and Simon, right? So could have been one of those things where he went by Levi or went by Matthew his whole life, or he may have changed his name later after he became a Christian uh, because tax collectors got a bad rap, as we're about to see. Uh, but this verse that we just read, verse 14, obviously reminds us of Jesus calling the four fishermen, right, in chapter 1, where he called Andrew and Simon, his brother, and James and his brother, John, to be his disciples. So you think, okay, this is what Jesus does. He calls people, he meets them 
doing their job, and he calls them to be his disciples. This is the same thing we saw in chapter 1. But what Jesus did just then in verse 14 that we just read is actually incredibly shocking to anyone who was watching him at that time and in that place in history. But you might not understand what you just read if you don't understand what it meant for someone to be a tax collector back then in Israel. For some of you, this is going to be a refresher uh, on some uh, historical context. And for some of you, this might be the first time you've ever heard this. Uh, But a bit about the Roman tax system. Uh, Back then, uh, under the Roman Empire, they had a very complex tax system, kind of like we do today in America. Uh, Basically, if you lived in a Roman-occupied country like Israel where they were at that time, uh, you got taxed to death, kind of like we do here in America, and all God's people said amen. Uh, but there, <laughs> there were two main groups of taxes back then. Uh, in the first group, you had to pay an income tax of about 1%. How awesome would that be? Uh, you paid an income tax of about 1%, and then you also had to pay a poll tax simply for being alive and living under the Roman Empire. Uh, you also had to pay a ground tax where you paid a tenth of all grain and a fifth of all wine and a fifth of all of the oil that you produced. Uh, If you were a fisherman, they would even tax you for how many fish that you caught. But those kind of taxes weren't so bad in that first category. Those were pretty normal um, because they were fair. They were set. They were fixed amounts, fixed percentages in that first group. But the second group of taxes in the Roman system um, were a bit more relative, a, a bit more arbitrary, you could say, and they were much broader Right, which means that there's a lot of areas for abuse under the second category. This this second group of taxes um, were things like you would pay taxes for using roads and for docking in harbors. There was sales tax on certain items. You would have import taxes and export taxes. Uh, You could be taxed for having a cart, right? Like 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 we have an automobile tax, right? It's kind of funny to see these comparisons. You could actually be taxed for each wheel that you had on your cart. Uh, and a tax collector could essentially stop you anytime, go through your stuff, and assign you an arbitrary amount of taxes that you needed to pay the tax collector. Right? So just get that picture in your head. It's arbitrary. It covers a lot of stuff, and it was not a fixed percentage or amount. So there's a lot of abuse in that second group of taxes. And with that second group of taxation, the Roman government would allow people to bid on the right to collect those taxes. I promise this will all make sense and this will all be very relevant here in a minute. I'm giving you a bit of a history lesson. But with that second group of taxes, the Roman government would allow people to bid on the right to collect taxes. Basically, uh, those who bid for the job would submit an estimate to the Roman government of how much tax revenue they thought that they could get out of an area. Right? So I think that I can get a million dollars out of Portsmouth. Right, So you would, you would select, put your bid in for a district. I think I can get you this much money, Rome. And if the government liked the bid and they thought that it was reasonable that the person could actually collect that much money, then they would give the job to the person who bid on it. It was like tax farming. Right? So then the person would then be selected and given authority by the Roman government as a tax collector and then given a quota to meet. You have to bring us this much money in that district. But whatever the tax collector collected above and beyond his quota, he could pocket. It was his to keep. And the Romans looked the other way because they didn't care. Because if you weren't a Roman citizen, eh. (laughs) Right? If you weren't Roman born, they didn't really care too much. So naturally, tax collectors would charge much higher percentages than the uh, Romans demanded, and they would pocket the rest. You could make an insane amount of money as a tax collector back then. 
But in order to collect, tax collectors would have to act like mafia bosses, right? They, they, they would have thugs hired to take money from people by force if the person didn't want to comply with the outrageous amounts demanded of them, right? Do you want to give me, you know, 100 bucks a day? Or you want me to send John to your house to break your thumbs and then you'll give it to me anyway, right? It was one of those things. Um, but, but tax collectors, they, they, they worked in extortion, right? They were greedy, they oppressed the poor. They worked in violence to get money. And the icing on this awful cake of tax collecting was that the tax collectors in Israel weren't Romans. They weren't Gentiles. They were Jews. Right? So you had Jews working for a godless, oppressive Gentile government. And not only were they helping the oppressive Romans, but they were adding to the suffering that the Romans were bringing on the people of Israel by taking more than the Romans required them to take. And they were using violent force if necessary to do it. These tax collectors were considered the absolute worst in Israel. Right? The worst. Uh, they were considered race traitors because they're working for the Gentiles. They're race traitors. They were considered enemies of Israel and by extension, enemies of God. According to the Jewish writings uh, called the Talmud and the Mishnah, uh, tax collectors were to be kicked out of synagogues and avoided by anyone who sought to be righteous. Tax collectors were a disgrace to their families. Again, they were the lowest of the low. That Many Jews didn't even consider tax collectors Jews, even though they were, they were born ethnically children of Abraham. Tax collectors were even considered ceremonial, ceremonially unclean because of what they did as tax collectors. If a tax collector were to come to your house or even touch your house, your house would be unclean and you'd have to go through ceremonial uh, rituals to make your house clean again. Remember how bad lepers were considered, right? We talked about in Mark chapter 1, lowest of the low, unclean, don't go near them. Tax collectors were thought to be worse than lepers. Because a leper didn't choose to become a leper, but a tax collector chose to become a tax collector. These people are bottom of the barrel. In other words, it's safe to say that tax collectors were the most hated and despised group of people in the nation of Israel in the first century. Nobody trusted them. They, they weren't even allowed to testify in court. No one trusted them. Those who, were, who tried to be righteous according to the law avoided them. Everyone hated them. But by Jewish tradition, tax collectors were put in the same category as thieves and murderers. The, the absolute worst. You didn't talk with them unless you had to. You didn't associate with them. You didn't eat meals with them. You avoided them as if they were diseased people. And by talking to them, you could catch the disease. They were considered too vile and wicked to be redeemed. Too evil to even attempt to teach them the right way and call them to repentance. If I could illustrate this for you, it, it would be like if you lived in Nazi-occupied France in World War II and your neighbor was giving out information to the Nazis for money. Right? Like how you would feel towards your neighbor, the disgust and hatred and anger you'd feel towards your neighbor is how the Jews felt about tax collectors. So you see that when Jesus called Levi the tax collector to follow him, this was a huge deal. This is not like whenever he called the fishermen. This is huge. This would have been an absolute scandal for anyone who was paying attention to Jesus' ministry. That he would call such a vile scumbag sinner like Levi was absolutely astounding. 
But in doing this, Jesus shows us something about the nature of grace. That's the theme of this, is grace. The Lord Jesus just called the worst of the worst, the absolute lowest, and made him a disciple. No doubt, Levi, just like the other four disciples at this point, had heard of Jesus before this day. Right? Remember, Jesus is very famous. He does a lot of teaching uh, in Capernaum. That's where this whole situation happens. No doubt he had heard of Jesus. He had heard Jesus' message of salvation by faith in the kingdom of God. But I would bet that Levi thought to himself, that sounds great, but that's not for me. That sounds great, but that's not for me. It might be for other people, but I am a tax collector. I am the worst, and I know what I am. I know how bad I am. Everyone lets me know regularly that I am a vile sinner. It can't be for me. This message that Jesus preaches cannot be for me. But here we see Jesus go to him and call him. And I can't help but to think that, that there may have been more of an exchange than just follow me. And he gets up and goes. It's as if Jesus is saying, no, Levi, this message is for you. It is for you. Salvation is for you if you'll trust me. Come, follow me. Leave this trash tax collecting behind and be my disciple. No doubt Levi knew what a sinner that he was. He knew that he deserved to be cut off from God and cut off from the people of God and thrown into hell for all of eternity. He knew that he wasn't righteous. He knew, as we're going to sing here in a little while, that he had no right to draw near to God. But in pure grace, the Lord Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. This is an invitation to salvation. This is an invitation to discipleship. He's offering, Jesus is offering Levi the forgiveness of sins in a new life. And he's offering it to someone who does not deserve it at all. Which is how Jesus always offers the forgiveness of sins and new life. He offers it to people who do not deserve it at all. You are saved by grace alone. And isn't this just like our Lord? That he would go to the lowest the one who knows he is a sinner and offers them the forgiveness of sins. This is the grace of Christ. Free grace is the theme of these first two verses. Honestly, you could say it's the theme of the entire passage. Free grace. Think about it here. Let's just break down what happened. Who was the active and who was the passive? Who was acting and who was the recipient in this exchange? Who did the calling? Did Levi call himself out of the tax booth? No, he didn't. The Lord Jesus freely called Levi. Jesus is the one who did the pursuing here. It says, and as he walked past the tax booth. Jesus didn't have to walk past the tax booth. Jesus chose to walk up to Levi. Jesus did not wait for Levi to approach him. Rather, Jesus approached Levi and called him. Jesus had set his sights on Levi. So Jesus went after him and made him a disciple. Christian, this is what Jesus did for you. Let that sink in. This is what he did for you. He ran you down. Like the hound of heaven that he is, he chased you down until he caught you. He came to you. You didn't find him. He found you. 
And he called you to himself by free grace. By pure and sovereign grace, he called you to himself. He subdued you by his grace, ran you down in love, made you willing and able to believe. You were so hardened in your sin, you did not have the ability or desire to believe, but he made you willing and able to believe. And then what did you do? You followed him. And what did you do to deserve this? Nothing. Nothing. Just like Levi. Nothing. You're saved by grace alone. But not only did Jesus do the calling of Levi to salvation and discipleship, but I would ask, when? That's the next question. When did Jesus call Levi? When, when Levi was in the midst of his sin, he was called. Verse 14 says that Jesus called him as he was sitting at the tax booth. As Levi is in the middle of his extorting people and stealing, sitting there with his ledger and taking notes of who had paid for what and who still owed and all that, here comes Jesus to him. Jesus was not disgusted by him, though no doubt Jesus was not okay with the sins that he was committing. But Jesus comes to him as he's in the midst of his sinful tax collecting. He didn't tell Levi to first morally reform and fix his life, and then he could follow Jesus. No, Jesus comes to him and calls him and says, follow me just as you are. Don't try and fix yourself first. Don't try and clean yourself up first. You just come and follow me. We will take care of the details as we go, but you follow me right now. Let's go. Jesus didn't require anything of Levi before he could come after him. He doesn't require any works or any effort from Levi. He just calls him to come. Again, Christian, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus did for you. He didn't ask you to fix yourself. He didn't say, first, stop committing these sins and then you can follow me and then I'll forgive you. No, He says, just come. Free and clear, I will forgive you. He called you to Himself, warts and all, sins and all, and He forgave you on the spot and made you a disciple. Consider if you can remember, and praise God for those of you who can't remember because you have been Christian since you were so young, but consider when, where you were when Christ came to you and saved you. You weren't doing anything that made you worthy. Enough of this stupid idea that you see on social media that you're worthy. You're not worthy of anything but damnation. You were doing nothing to make you worthy in the eyes of God. You were unconverted and in your sin. But Jesus came to you and bid you to come and and, and follow Him. And you went just as you were. And then He began to change you. Your, Your repentance actually came after your faith, just so you know. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, but faith comes first. The Holy Spirit works faith in your heart, and then you repent in response to faith. Your repentance came later, but He said, trust Me first. But there was no prerequisite to your coming to Christ. Christ demanded nothing from you but to trust in Him and begin to follow Him. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus. That He would take the lowest of the low and raise them up. And think about it. Who does Levi become? As we said earlier, he becomes a disciple of Jesus and eventually an apostle. He goes on to write the Gospel of Matthew. 
a tax collector who was kicked out of the synagogue and hated by everyone in Israel, considered the most vile and lowest of the low sinner, is called by the Lord Jesus and made into an apostle. This is the power of the Lord Jesus. This is what the grace of Christ can do to a sinner. So know this, as I said in the introduction, nobody is too far gone that the Lord Jesus can't save them and change them. He saved Levi. He made Levi a disciple. He can and will save and forgive and change anyone who comes to him in faith. Anyone who responds to his call in faith. Christian, can you identify with Levi? Can you identify with this tax collector? This vile sinner who was called and saved by the free and sovereign grace of Christ. In no uncertain terms do I want to say this. You are Levi. right? You are the tax collector. You are a sinner, same as him. A violator of the law of God. Someone who had no right to approach God or expect the forgiveness of sins. All you deserve is the wrath of God because of your sin. But in pure and free grace, the Lord Jesus came to you and said, follow me. And you responded in faith and began to go after him. And he forgave you. And he made you a new person. He made you a disciple. Levi's story is our story. It's a story of the grace of Christ. But after Levi left his tax booth, he, Jesus, and the rest of his disciples went back to Levi's house and Levi threw a party. Verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. A parallel passage in Luke chapter 5 says that Levi had a feast in Jesus' honor. Right? So Levi is forgiven by Christ and made a disciple, and he decides to throw a party. Right? This could be a farewell party to his days of tax collecting. I think this is more of a rejoicing over the forgiveness of sins that he just had. Right? No doubt this is a joyous celebration of what Jesus has just done for him. Remember how you felt the day you were converted. But imagine that Jesus is physically there and you can invite him back to your house after he has just saved you from your sins. Of course, if you had the means, you would throw a party. And Levi invites the only kind of friends that he has. <laughs> Tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> Levi doesn't know anybody else. He doesn't have religious friends. He doesn't have friends who claim to love God and observe the Old Testament law, the Torah. Right? Those kinds of people wouldn't associate with him because he was a tax collector, remember? He doesn't have religious friends. So imagine this big feast at the incredibly wealthy Levi's house. And everyone there is a tax collector or notorious sinner except for Jesus and his disciples. It's a party of social outcasts and Jesus. And our text tells us that these sinners and tax collectors are reclining at table with Jesus. This means that they're eating a meal together. Uh, back then, similar to today, to eat a meal uh, with someone is to socialize with them. It's a sign of acceptance and friendship. So here we have Jesus befriending these social outcasts and these sinners that the religious people in Israel could not stand and counted as too sinful to associate with. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus wasn't trying to pal around with their sin. The Lord Jesus wasn't condoning their sin or wanting to encourage them in their sin or participate with them in their sins. He was not pleased with their sin. 
I would guarantee you Jesus was teaching them. He, he was, he's always teaching. He's preaching the gospel to them. Luke says that he calls them to repentance. He's teaching them what it really meant to be a citizen of God's kingdom. No, no doubt he's teaching them. But nevertheless, he's reclined at table with them. He's befriending them. Right? Like the hymn, Jesus, friend of sinners. He's befriending the lowest of the low. He, preaching or not, he's sitting at them. He's treating them like human beings and associating with those who were considered the scum of the earth in their day. He knows that they're bearers of the image of God and he's treating them as such. He's not avoiding them. He was loving them. He was teaching them. He was fellowshipping with them. And as we'll see, he was doing this in order to call them to himself. Again, this is a beautiful picture of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Just consider this for a minute. I think sometimes, myself included, all of us, we forget who we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. Consider this, that though he is God, the Holy One, the Righteous One, who hates sin and will take no part in sin, he still takes time and allows himself to associate with sinners and go to them so that he might call them to himself. Jesus showed love to these people that nobody else wanted to interact with. The ones that the religious elite scorned and kept away from. Behold your God, Christian. This is the Lord Jesus Christ exercising His grace. This should make us sinners rejoice that Jesus loves and calls and fellowships with sinners. But not everyone was happy about this. Verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that He was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to His disciples, Why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? Which wasn't really a question. It wasn't, oh, sincerely curious here, kind of confused. Why is he eating? No, it was an accusatory question. What does he think he's doing? Why is he eating with them? They're accusing Jesus of wrongdoing. But I want to be clear, the Pharisees are there in the text, but they're not at the party. They wouldn't have been there. If you know anything about Pharisees, as you're about to learn, they wouldn't have been there. They're probably outside of the house. Maybe there was an open door or they didn't really have windows, but what we would call windows, kind of peering in that way because they hate Jesus. They're always looking for some excuse to call him a blasphemer or something. But as they look through, what they see makes them sick to their stomachs. They see Jesus socializing and being a friend to and interacting with these sinners. Now, a word about Pharisees here for the next few minutes. They were the religious elite of their day, right? Like these are the most brilliant theologians that they had back in their day. The holiest people externally. You looked at a Pharisee, you wanted a Pharisee to be your neighbor, right? He's not going to steal from you. He's going to have a clean lawn, right? It's going to be good. Property value probably goes up around Pharisees' houses in Israel, I would imagine, right? They're very externally righteous. They, they, they are the most pious people of their day. They're the religious elite. Their name, Pharisee, actually means separated ones. Right? They were holy, so what they did is they separated themselves from unholy people, meaning they avoided people who weren't in their particular religious camp or didn't adhere to the law as strictly as they did. They were a group of self-righteous people. And I mean that literally. I don't mean that in, in like a modern way. I mean literally they were self-righteous. They thought that their obedience to God's law made them acceptable to God. They literally believed in a works 
righteousness way of salvation. They believe salvation came by obedience to God instead of by grace through faith. And they thought that part of what it meant to be obedient to God and part of what it meant to be holy was to not associate with sinners. They thought that salvation came from distancing themselves and staying away from anyone who was morally loose. So naturally, they looked down on and despised people who they deemed as a sinner. They wouldn't associate with such people. Again, the Pharisees viewed themselves as righteous before God because of their obedience. But funny enough, if you read the Gospels at all, you know that Jesus points out many times during his earthly ministry that most of these Pharisees are hypocrites. On the outside, externally, they seem to be very righteous and scrupulous, pious men. But on the inside, Jesus says they're greedy, they're arrogant, they're full of lust. They had no genuine love for God. But contrary to what Jesus constantly told them, that you're sinners, you're sinners, you clean the outside of the cup, but on the inside is death. He said, that's a Pharisee. Very good on the outside, but inside they don't love God. Contrary to what Jesus told them, they believed that they were righteous. They didn't view themselves as sinners. They didn't view themselves as people in need of the grace of God. They thought that they were as close to God as anyone could be. They, they didn't think that they needed the forgiveness of sins that only Jesus can give. In fact, they frequently accuse Jesus of blasphemy, as we're going to see here in a few weeks, and they oppose him every chance that they get. So these Pharisees were absolutely furious that Jesus, who claims to be holy, and the Son of God would sit down and associate with these awful sinners. They're so angry that they ask Jesus' disciples, because they're such big, tough men that they don't want to ask Jesus to his face, they ask his disciples, uh, why does he eat with people like that? They're unholy. They're wicked people. He should know better. He should keep away from them if he is really holy. He should distance himself from these sinners. To give you some context for why they think that way, there was actually a teaching among Pharisees that basically said, if I could summarize it, don't go around sinners. Don't even go around them or talk to them in order to teach them the right way. They believed that some people were just too far gone in their sin that God wouldn't save them. And that some people were just beyond the grace of God. You probably know what we're about to do. I have to ask the question, are you a Pharisee? Often, whenever Jesus has beef with the Pharisees, you're not one of the people sitting at the table with Jesus saying, yeah, Jesus, you're the Pharisee that he's rebuking. More often than not. Not always, but more often than not. Are you a Pharisee? Now, I know that for many of us, our theology is too good. <laughs> our theology is too biblical for us to ever say with our mouths that some people just shouldn't be associated with. That you just shouldn't preach the gospel to some people. That there are some people that you shouldn't be around. Right? And I know for a fact, at least for the members of our church, that our theology is too good for us to ever say out loud, I am a better person than that person. I'm righteous and they are a sinner. I know our theology is too good for that. But let me ask you this. Is there any group of people or any certain type of sinner that you refuse to engage with? That you think about when you see their sin on social media, right? Swiping through Facebook and you just despise them. Is there any group? Is there any individual maybe 
groups like homosexuals. And for the record, before I go any further, I'm not saying necessarily that all sin is equal. I think some sins are more grievous and heinous than others. I think the Bible teaches that. I'm not saying that any of these sins are condonable or that we should coddle sinners. We should name sin and call people to repentance. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but for this list, I want to know, do you hate these kinds of people and, don't, and, and you would refuse to associate with them? People like homosexuals, abortionists, pro-aborts, transgenders, racists, thieves, drug dealers, rapists, child molesters, drug addicts, alcoholics, deadbeat parents, is, is there a group or type of sinner that you don't really care if they go to heaven or hell? Be real with yourself for a minute. Is there a group or type of sinner that you would actually not try to reach out to if you had the opportunity? That you would never attempt to sit down with and befriend for the sake of the gospel? Be honest with yourself. The easy Sunday school answer here is, well, of course not. I know I'm a sinner saved by grace, and they need the same thing. And look, you're right. That is the right answer. That is proper theology. But be honest with yourself for five minutes, and I bet you have at least one group of people that you put in the category of tax collector that you hate. And I deal with the same stuff. And I'm not the only sinner gathered here this evening. And that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means you're a Pharisee in that area of your life and that you need to repent of your self-righteousness. Or maybe you're an accidental Pharisee. Right? Where you don't actively hate or disdain any group. But you have effectively put yourself in a Christian ghetto. And I mean that in the World War II sense of ghetto. Where you only eat with Christians. You only spend time with Christians. Your only friends are Christians. You only talk with Christians. And you've maybe accidentally become one of the separated ones. You don't know anyone that's not a Christian. You, you've, you've separated yourself from the world. And therefore you're not actively going to sinners like Jesus did. Maybe you're an accidental Pharisee. Or maybe you've slipped into a form of self-righteousness. And you're not a Pharisee in one area, you're just actually a Pharisee. Where you, you've been a believer, or you've at least professed the faith for so long, and, and, and you've externally mortified quite a bit of sin in your life, and after having morally reformed your life to one degree or another, you begin to compare yourself to sinners in the world and think, they are horrible. They are horrible vile. I can't believe that they do that stuff. I'm not like that. I'm not I am I'm, I'm better than they are. I'm not that wretched. Try this one. If you ever thought this, I know that I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as them. And that kind of mentality eventually leads you to thinking that you on your own are just more righteous than they are. And you secretly begin to think that you're better than someone who commits certain sins instead of remembering that you are a sinner yourself. And you become self-righteous in your own heart. And I mean, Pastor Stephen, we're talking about this yesterday. The ironic thing about Pharisees both then and now is that a Pharisee is a hypocrite. 
A Pharisee thinks that they are righteous and other people are sinners, but all the while, and hear me out and think about this and apply this to yourself, all the while, the Pharisee has committed or commits sins in the same category as the sinner that they hate, but they just don't see it that way. The Pharisee hates the homosexual but refuses to admit that they themselves have committed sexual sin too. Pornography, lust, fornication... They may be straight, but they've committed sexual sin as well. The Pharisee hates the transgender person who claims that God ought not have made them that way, but they themselves have accused God of making a wrong decision and doing the wrong thing in their own life. The Pharisee hates the racist, but doesn't realize that they've been prejudiced themselves just with another set of criteria. They hate the deadbeat parent while not recognizing that they themselves have mistreated their own children in different ways and haven't always been there for them either. They hate the addict and the alcoholic, but they themselves have self-medicated their own problems away just with different things. The Pharisee doesn't recognize himself or herself as a sinner in need of the same grace that the sinners they hate need. The Pharisee is a sinner, but they don't recognize it. They're blind in their sin and don't see things rightly. Are you in some way a Pharisee? Where if you saw Jesus associating with the group that you despise, you would be shocked and upset that you couldn't believe that Jesus would go to them. And remember, you can be a Pharisee in your heart even if your theology is too good to permit you to speak like one. I guess that all of us just got hit in one way or another. This is hard to write, just so you know. Like, I get the beating for six days and then bring this to you on Sunday. But Jesus gives a gospel rebuke to the Pharisees here. The Pharisees ask, why would Jesus associate and speak with these people? And Jesus replies to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus starts with a proverb that everyone can agree on, right? He says healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Duh, right? That's a proverb. You don't have to be a believer to understand. You don't have to be religious. That just makes sense. That's an accepted proverb back in their day and today. You don't go to a doctor unless you're sick. You don't call a doctor to come to your house unless you're sick. Healthy people don't need medical attention, right? And those who think that they're healthy don't think that they need a doctor, Jesus says, in the same way, I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. A doctor doesn't go to healthy people. A savior doesn't go to righteous people. Doctors go to the sick, and a savior goes to sinners. It's like, if I could put it to you this way, why is Jesus talking like this? It's like Jesus is, for the sake of argument, agreeing with the Pharisees for a moment that they are righteous. He's saying, I came for sinners. I came to save sinners. I can't do anything for you if you don't think you're a sinner. I didn't come for you because you are so righteous already. But I came for sinners. He's saying, I came for people who know that they are unrighteous and condemned in the eyes of God because of their sin and want to be saved. But I did not come for those who think that they're good with God because morally or externally they are a certain way that that they're good. Jesus didn't come for those who are righteous in their own eyes. 
People like the Pharisees are blind in their sin and they think that they don't need Him. And please hear me. Pharisees die in their sins and go to hell because they refuse to come to the Savior. But the people that Jesus came to, the tax collectors and sinners, they know that they're bad. They know that they need forgiveness. So he goes to them. So I just want to to stop here for a second. Know this. If you're convinced that you're righteous, then Christ will do nothing for you. He hasn't come for you. In fact, if you think that you're righteous, He hasn't come for you. He's come for those who know that they are vile. He's come for those who know that they're wicked sinners and who desire forgiveness from God. He's come for those who desire a Savior. That's who He's come for. And this is really good news if you're honest with yourself and you know what you are. This is good news if you know that you're a sinner. God help us that we would never lose sight of what sinners that we actually are. None of us are righteous. Just because we don't commit certain sins that other people commit does not mean that we're better off. Sit and think about your life. Like, I I did this for a few minutes. Just literally, just a few minutes. Like, the greatest hits of David Doughty's sin. Right? You have committed enough horrible sins against God to earn your damnation millions of times over. You're not righteous. You're the tax collector. You're the sinner. There's only one righteous person in this entire story, and his name is Jesus. Right? And the only way to receive forgiveness is to recognize that about yourself and come to him in faith. Jesus is saying to those who think that they are righteous, I have nothing to say to you. But to those who know that they're sinners in need of salvation, I've come to heal them spiritually and call them to myself. You must see yourself as lost before you can be saved. You have to know that you're spiritually sick before you can be spiritually healed. In fact, you you must know that you are spiritually dead in sin before you can be made spiritually alive by the Savior. Pharisees perish under the wrath of God because they don't see themselves as sinners. But, but, even the most vile and wretched sinner will find the forgiveness of sins if they agree with God that they are sinners and look to Christ who saves them. If you're wondering why Jesus, just icing on the cake, I stole this from John Calvin. If you're wondering why Jesus would associate with the worst of sinners and call them to himself, just consider what he came to do. He came to be the great physician, to heal the spiritually sick and raise the spiritually dead. He came to save sinners. He came to make people new by the blood of His cross. He came to make children of wrath into the children of God. He came to satisfy the wrath of God in place of sinners on the cross. He came to be the second Adam and obey God perfectly as the covenant representative for sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to redeem fallen sinful people. If you understand why He came, then it will never be a shock to you that He would invite wicked people to come to Him and be saved. It'll never be a shock to you that he would associate with sinners if you understand why he came. If Christ was made a curse on the cross for sin, and he was, 
then why would we ever think that some people should be avoided and not called to repent and believe on him? That just doesn't make sense. If we think that we shouldn't associate with sinners or that some are just too far gone to be saved, then we don't understand the nature of Christ or his work. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So sinner, come to him. Come to him in faith, believing that he can and will forgive you for your sins. He's a gracious Savior and will love you and forgive you and begin to change you just as he did Levi. He's calling you. Please hear me. If you doubt that he's calling you, read the words of Christ. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You're a sinner. That means he's calling you. Come to him. Pharisee, come to him. See that you're unrighteous and proud and repent. Agree that you're sick and that you need the great physician. Agree that you've been an arrogant sinner who needs a Savior and look to him. He will forgive you and take you in as well. And Christian, continue to come to him. As Pastor Steve is faithful to tell us every week when we take the Lord's Supper, you'll never not need him. You'll never not need him. You'll always be a sinner until you're sealed in righteousness in the life to come. Continue to view yourself as a sinner in need of the Savior and continue to look to him for grace. And finally, may the people of God continue the mission of Christ. To go after the sinner. How do people meet with Christ? They meet with Christ through His church today. The body of Christ. They're not going to meet Him physically, but they're going to meet us and we carry on His mission as those who have been united with Him. Go after the sinner. Associate with the outcast. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh is what Jude says. Hating sin not wanting to mix in with their sin, but going to the sinner to break down barriers and to take the gospel even to the worst of the worst. Since Christ came to us when we were in our tax booths like Levi, how could we not go and meet them where they are? He came to call sinners, and we as his people do the same. Let's pray.